Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, good afternoon. Happy Thursday, friends. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Thanks for joining us here today. we got a lot to get to. The telephone number you want to join in the conversation, you want to get something off your chest today, 403-974-8255. That's 974-TALK. A lot to talk about today. We're going to delve back into the arena conversation in just a second here. The new deal announced this week. Uh, coming up later on this afternoon, we'll talk about crime, disorder. There are calls for a national strategy to deal with those issues on public transit we'll hear from one criminologist who says we got to look beyond just public transit we got to look at all public places we'll talk about that we'll also talk about the federal government's gun buyback they say they've got a partner now in the canadian sporting arms and ammunition association that association has made it pretty clear that they are not on board with the government's agenda we'll clarify what their role is in all of this as we hear from their president coming up later on today we'll also talk canadian history a new organization has come together uh, to defend canadian history defend canadian historical figures we will hear from the found, one of the founding members of the canadian institute for historical education so all of that and more straight ahead on the program here this afternoon but of course uh, the big news in calgary this week the announcement of a new deal to build a new arena slash event center uh, and to move forward with this vision for what's known as the Rivers District. Stampede's part of this, of course. The Alberta government's a part of this, which is interesting. And then you've got the city and the flames. We were close before. In fact, we had a deal before uh, that collapsed, as uh, we all recall, in December of 2021. Looks as though... Something has been salvaged here. It's a different deal, though. It's a more expensive deal. It is, I think, arguably maybe a more favorable deal for the uh, Calgary Flames or the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation. What do we make of all of this? Well, someone who was uh, on the inside when the previous deal was being negotiated, has been following all this very closely, is former city councilor and former mayoral candidate Jeremy Farkas. Joining us on the line here this afternoon. Jeremy, great to have you back with us here. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate making some time for us here today. Were you surprised at all uh, either to see a, a new deal reached or, or B, uh, to, to see the province involved? Well, I don't even know where to start. Uh, I think it's not surprising to see that the uh, parties came together again. I think there's a lot of value in having a new facility, and especially given that it's probably going to be hundreds, hundreds of millions over the next while to solve the saddle dome. It really doesn't quite make sense to put uh, good money after bad. So I think... At the end of the day, Calgarians, they, they want a new facility, but they just want to make sure that they're getting a, a good deal for it. And really, under the old deal, taxpayers paid about half, and it's arguable, but uh, we got about most of the money back. And uh, under the new deal, though, taxpayers are going to be uh, paying double the money that uh, we put in before and now paying about three quarters and getting no money back. So I think that there's a, a lot of details that still haven't been revealed, but... Uh, at this point, it really looks like uh, both the, the provincial government and our city council and mayor got fleeced. Well, and that, yeah, I think that's the concern here. I mean, I, I get the sense that there was some relief that, okay, now this is finally moving ahead. Maybe we can put this behind us. But 
if you know Wade had to take a worse deal or reach a worse deal to get there, then that leaves, I think, kind of a, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So this seems then, in your view, like it's a worse deal than what was there before. Well, and not to make it too much about the numbers, but uh, under the old deal, uh, CSEC and the city were roughly equal partners. Uh, CSEC was responsible for the, the cost overruns. Uh, we're both putting in uh, $290 million each. The city was going to take care of demolishing the Saddle Dome uh, and potentially rebuilding the the building in the event of a flood. And we're also partners on the upside. So the, the city would earn back most of what it put in, about $160 million over 35 years. And we'd also get, and this is crucial, a portion of the naming rights worth about $25 million. So we'd get uh, also, I think it was $75 million of funding for amateur sports groups. So, you know, we put in about $300 million from the taxpayer, and ultimately over the, the next few decades, we would have gotten about that much back. But it's really brazen to see what uh, has happened here. Uh, Jody Gondek and the council, the, 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 the agreement that we'd agreed to, it broke down due to increased costs. And, you know, according to who you ask, uh, there was an additional $30 million dollars in urban realm improvements, solar panels that neither party wanted to uh, pay for. So uh, both feedback and the city walked away. Mm-hmm. So they went back to the negotiating table and they, they tried to settle for that $30 million gap between who pays for what. And ultimately, Daniel Smith was elected UCP leader. And it was shocking. They, they came out this week to announce that they've fixed that $30 million gap by having city taxpayers put in about $250 million more, almost double for a new total of about uh, $550 million. And provincial taxpayers would also put in $330 million. And instead of CSEC uh, putting in that uh, $290 million to start, they're actually only going to put in $40 million. And the city is now actually going to loan the flames more than $300 million to be paid back at about $17 million per year. And this is debt that's going to weigh down the city's books. It's going to affect our credit rating and possibly increase the interest rates when it comes to us building anything and everything like transit and fire halls. And even more going, we're not going to get any of the naming rights anymore. We're not going to get any of that ticket tax. And the naming rights alone is huge. Uh, I know that we're not as big a market as Toronto, but Scotiabank just paid $800 million for that alone for the Toronto arena. So, again, it's just crazy to see uh, the details of the building alone and, and not to mention the $1 billion plus in value of bargain basement land sales and transfers and other development uh, benefits and profits to CSEC. So, again, I think most Calgarians were in support of getting a deal done, and if we're equal partners, we should be on the upside and the downside. But under this new deal, taxpayers are doubling the overall money that we're putting in. Mm-hmm. We're now paying three quarters, and we're getting no money back. And I think it just reeks of opportunism. And I'd say just, again, shame on Danielle Smith and Jody Gondek for uh, giving away the farm because they were desperate to score political points. Okay, you mentioned the ticket tax. I wanted to come back to that because that was something in the last arena deal. And there was some, some, you know, sort of back and forth over what that should be. But that was supposed to be one way of, of, you know, the city recouping some of the costs here. It was a 2% ticket tax that would have gone back to the city. That's not a part of this deal, then. Yeah, and I thought the 2% was even on the low end. Look, yeah. uh, with Edmonton's deal, and some people argue that it was a, a really sweetheart deal for uh, the Oilers, but even with Edmonton's deal, they get back, I think it's between a 7 and 10% ticket tax. And look, even the naming rights, uh, us getting $25 million of that, again, that's still on the low side compared to what uh, 
uh, some of these other arenas have gone for. And I think it's, it's interesting, though, in terms of it exposing some strengths and vulnerabilities for both the NDP and the UCP. So it looks like uh, the UCP, again, it's just blatant electioneering. And, you know, I would never have called for 2023 to see uh, Mayor Jody Gondek to be up there on the stage smiling <laughs> at what is essentially UCP campaign. Yeah, okay. uh, but I think the UCP is just really daring the NDP to come out uh, either for or against this. And there's risks either way. And I think there's risks to coming out and being seen as sort of against sports. But I think just with the, how blatantly we're getting fleeced by this, I think that there's an opportunity for the NDP. And look, I, I'm not an NDP supporter, but, you know, there has to be somebody out there somewhere who's willing to challenge this. And the, the city council vote 15 to 0 was astonishing to me. Nothing gets passed unanimously. And the fact that they've closed ranks in, in such a way really shows the need for at least somebody on that council to show some critical thinking. You mentioned the previous deal and where things broke down because there were some additional costs that have been uh, identified in the permit review process and, you know, there was a disagreement over who would be responsible. Looking back at that and factoring in just how much more taxpayer dollars are going into this new deal, like, do you think we could have, if we had just taken whatever was $30 million at the time and salvaged that deal, that we'd be better off than, you know, what we have now? Yeah, and hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, and, you know, this is obviously kind of personal for me. I don't want to nitpick uh, our mayor and council too much, but it just seems pretty straightforward. And, you know, if we had paid the $30 million that the city was demanding in solar panels and so on, then we, we could have been shovels in the ground uh, last year. But it's just astonishing to me that uh, we sent in a negotiating team, the, the finest from the city and the province, to try to close that $30 million gap have taxpayers come back and actually think almost 600 million more it's, it's it's really astonishing to me and it's actually kind of genuinely impressive and you know at the time i had uh, been really frustrated with the old deal i thought it wasn't a great deal because we were going to be on the hook for uh the the flood costs and repairing the building uh if in the event uh, another flood would happen but it, it's at, we're at a point it was it would almost be cheaper for us today if we had actually just paid for the entire thing period in 2019 just paid for it outright within this current arrangement and that way we would have actually saved taxpayers in the long run but you know a point i just want to emphasize is that i think we can be for sports we can be for community we can recognize the incredible contributions that the flame make to the city but also want to make sure that city taxpayers are treated fairly you know if we're investing in this if we're a partner in the enterprise we should share not just in the uh, downside but also the upside and it just looks, uh, unless there's more details to this, it's just looking pretty awful, not just when it comes to the uh, financing of the building itself, but also the, the billions of dollars in uh, value. And it's still under wraps in terms of what the development and, and land value is going to be for CSEC. Yeah, they'll certainly have, you know, a role to play in that, which, which again, I mean, does, does benefit them. And I think people do want to see the Flames, to see CSEC doing well and, and thriving in the city. But, yeah, again, I guess the question of what cost, because, you know, going back, so we mentioned there's, there's no ticket tax here. Um, you know, this building's owned by the city, so there's no property tax revenue. So the city is paying, or the Flames will be paying back this loan to the city. They'll be putting $1.5 million a year into community sports. But is, is that essentially all that's coming out of their pockets here? Well, it looks like that at this point. And, and you know, I think in the, in the long run, hopefully there'll be more development uh, around the area, more restaurants and uh, potentially businesses that the city could be collecting property taxes on. But, 
you know, it's it's really frustrating to to see them just uh, break the bank like this. And I think it's it's just such a weird time, especially with the election. Both Danielle Smith and uh, Jody Gondek were really desperate for a win, and uh, they were desperate to come up with the money. And you know, when one party is so desperate for a deal, then they give away all of their leverage. And and trust me, when they more or less, and I'm paraphrasing here, but. When you more or less tell Murray Edwards to uh, screw off over $30 million, when he comes back to the table, he's going to get definitely his uh, pound of flesh, and it looks like he got that and then some. Well, yeah, what do you make of the mayor's role in all of this? Because I know there were, were some who kind of pointed the finger of blame at her when, when this deal collapsed, and, and I don't know if you know she necessarily bears responsibility for that. There was criticism of how she handled the aftermath of, of all of that and whether you know the Flames kind of wanted her sidelined in these negotiations. You know, obviously, someone who aspired to that job and, and did run against uh, Jody Gondek in the last election. What, what's your take on all of that? Yeah, and I don't want to be, again, I don't want to be too critical because it's self-serving. It would be super easy for me to say, you know, all the problems she's facing, uh, I wouldn't have. But, right. And, of course, I voted for the other guy, but I think the other guy would have been struggling just as much with some of these issues, to be honest with you. But I think she's in just a really precarious place because she uh, campaigned strongly on this uh, progressive brand. She campaigned strongly as a person to stand up to the UCP and to advocate and right now, when we're having a housing affordability crisis, uh, rents have gone up 25% plus, uh, and you're going to be talking about, this, about crime and safety in the downtown and our transit system, uh, crumbling education and healthcare system. It's just really, really tough to be justifying basically just finding a billion dollars between the couch cushions for something like this, when at the same time the city's cutting things like, say, mental health supports and whatnot. So I think it's just a really tricky position that she's in uh, as a mayor based on what uh, she had campaigned on. And, you know, I think that the NDP has an opportunity here. And again, I'm not an NDP supporter, but I would say that take a look at 2017, the, the lesson that we saw with uh, Mayor Nancy's successful re-election bid. Uh, mayor Nancy made it very clear that he was in support of an arena, but it wasn't going to be at any cost. He was up and against an opponent in Bill Smith, who, for better or for worse, was seen as being in the pocket of the flames. And the smart money was betting against uh, Ned Nietzsche. And I think that uh, based on the fact that he was reelected on this brand of, and again, this is, I've had my financial frustrations with the, the former mayor, but he was actually reelected on actually advocating for property tax barriers. And it's just astonishing to me to see uh, some of the decisions from this mayor and council that really miss, make me so desperately miss the previous one. We'll see where this all goes from here. Appreciate your insight on all of this, Jeremy. Great chatting with you. Thanks for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks again for the opportunity. All the best. Cheers. Uh, that's Jeremy Farkas, a former city councilor, of course, former mayoral candidate. And his thoughts, you know, comparing the previous deal, and, and he was on city council when that was reached to this new deal. Looking at it from the outside, if you follow Jeremy on, on Twitter, it's Jeremy YYC, J-E-R-O-M-Y, Jeremy YYC. He's posted uh, his own analysis, looking at some of the various aspects in the New Deal, how they compare with the old deal. And why, in his view, this New Deal is not good. It's a worse deal, he says, than what we had before. And even then, he had some concerns. I mean, A, do you agree with that? And B, at this point, does it matter? Are people willing to take a not-so-great deal just so we can be done with this? Maybe put some faith into the notion that even under a not-so-great deal, maybe this all still works out okay.
in terms of the overall impact on the city. Let's talk about another big issue up the top in this hour, public safety. A lot of concern, not just in Calgary and cities right across the country, about increasing rates of crime and social disorder. Now, we're seeing a lot of that manifest itself on public transit. Just recently, the Canadian Urban Transit Association called for a national strategy, a national task force on safety on public transit. But our next guest says it's too narrow a focus. We need to take a look at at safety in all public spaces. That's what we need a national task force to address. Uh, Dr. Kelly Sundberg is a criminologist, associate professor in the Department of Economics, Insta Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Sundberg, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I mean, there's obviously a connection here, right? We talk about the, the challenges facing public transit uh, systems across the country and, and broader issues of crime and social disorder. I mean, this is really all linked, isn't it? It's totally linked. I mean, we're seeing it in public transit because more people are using public transit. The same problems exist within public libraries, parks, um, you know, community plazas and squares, on the streets, I mean, in downtown course. It's, it's basically the, the, the same problems that we're seeing on transit are existing within other public spaces. So I'm proposing we look at public spaces including transit. But I think that idea for national tra- uh, national task force is needed. I just mm-hmm. think it needs to be public spaces, which includes transit. Right. And so why, why would that be a more effective approach in your view? Well, for instance, let's say we increase the security police presence, security officers at transit nodes, so C-train stations or bus exchanges, mm-hmm. we're going to be pushing those people that uh, are, are being expelled from those spaces. They're simply going to move to another public space or into the, and into the neighborhood around those. So if we, if we focus on only transit, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we can very effectively address uh, public uh, safety and security within transit by increasing the presence. But the unfortunate thing is the neighbors around those transit stations are going to be quite upset when they see quite an, uh, a change in their uh, social landscape. So by looking at the more larger picture, we can start to uh, identify solutions uh, that are community-focused, but that, uh, that are enforcement-driven, uh, community-focused, that will address the security in public spaces um, across the board. And uh, hoping to get at those root causes, because at the end of the day, we can't be shuffling people around that are engaged in this kind of uh, social disorder and uh, criminal behavior, uh, we need to address their, their criminality and their, their, the challenges that are causing them to, to engage in criminal uh, behavior. But uh, we can't, this is the thing, we can't look at one piece because if we move one, we, do, we, we put energy into one area, it's just going to uh, come, come to bear in another. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important point. I mean, you know, we, we, we see ups and downs over the years in, in crime rates and, we, you know, we, we've seen rates of crime that, that are higher than they are today. But it seems pretty apparent that we, we have seen an uptick or an increase in crime and social disorder in recent years. And I guess if we want to tackle it, we need to, first of all, understand why. Is, is there a, a simple or straightforward explanation as to why? Uh, there's a number of factors. There's some, been really some, quite a bit interesting research lately. I mean, we left a vacuum. So when during COVID, when people left public spaces, the, the only people remaining uh, were, were those who were living off or homeless, 
uh, or others who were uh, suffering from uh, mental health or addiction issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And during the same period, just like you and I and everybody, we're having trouble uh, getting access to our family doctors or to any special care. I mean, this has become quite a crisis in our healthcare system. Uh, You can imagine just how much of a crisis it is for people who are living rough or on the street. It made it even worse. Some of these people have some serious um, mental health challenges that make them prone for aggression, violence, and and antisocial behavior. So, unfortunately, when they weren't treated, uh, especially for a number of years, their condition worsened. And they were living in uh, in our public spaces. And now that we're returning, there's a there's a, a, a friction, a social friction or con- conflict that's happening. And this is why we're starting to to see this spike in uh, random violence in transit nodes, especially. I mean, these are places that are more congested and bustle, you know, very busy. So it's understandable. We see it in these spaces as opposed to, say, the library. But we've seen we've seen some incidents in the libraries also. We've seen the incidents all over in our public spaces. And I think it's time we put a handle on it and, and start addressing it, saying that it's not okay to have parks littered with syringes. Uh, right. It's not okay to uh, have people harassed in public spaces. But the reason why I think a national task force is a great idea, one, it's going to be more cost-effective. Let's say Ottawa and Calgary partnered with one another, for mm-hmm. instance, on this. And a, and a group was established, uh, an advisory, expert advisory panel and, and group that developed a master plan in Calgary, and they did a, a shadow or, a, or a, a, a mirrored group in Ottawa. If those two groups were networked, we're going to uh, get such great insight. And I think we also, this the notion of the network and the master plan I'm suggesting is we have to start collecting data, and we have to create better roads or better pathways for citizens to express their concerns to the city. Um, be it in a park or on the transit, we need to start capturing this data more effectively so we can analyze it and and then put the resources uh, where we need them. Because like you said, this is is what we're seeing today, but we don't know what we're going to see in the future. So why don't we take this opportunity to do some a strategic master plan, identify the problems, set up a platform to collect information and data and do this the right way. And hopefully uh, we will reduce crime We'll uh, reduce the issues of social disorder, and we're going to help a lot of people that need help. Yeah. What about the criminal justice system and all of this, both in terms of, you know, the police who, who have to deal with all of this, you know, the courts that, that, that end up having to deal with this? So you get the sense that maybe for a lot of these issues you've highlighted, maybe the courts are ill-prepared to deal with a lot of this stuff. And then you've got the concern that, you know, we've got a lot of people that are right back on the streets uh, despite being charged with serious crimes, you know, the calls for bail reform. Where, where does all of this fit in? Well, that's another really tricky but excellent question. I mean, we're seeing a lot of uh, jurisdictions uh, increasing the number of key, uh, police officers, peace officers, and security officers. Right. But that's 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 great. I mean, I do think we need to uh, we need to have those individuals out there for sure. But we have to remember it's the criminal justice system. So if we increase the the resourcing in one part of the system and we don't in others, we develop backlogs. So if we're going to hire more police, you also have to hire more Crown prosecutors, more judges, open up more court time. Um, So that's the issue, and I see the solution is boots on the ground, boots on the ground. Well, I think we need to have uh, more lawyers in the courtroom and more courtroom time. 
you can't have you can't do both. Otherwise, it becomes ineffective. And I think when we look out in Ontario, I really hope we don't start reducing the education requirement for police. Yeah. I mean, when we're in crisis, I think that is just simply ridiculous. It's it's terrifying to me that the one thing that they, I mean, are they still going to learn how to march and polish their boots and these sort of things? Like, come on now. Cutting the education is foolish. We want to have great cops who are well-educated, can make critical decisions, and can, uh, and, and can do so quickly and ethically. We don't want to water down the qualification of becoming a police officer or a peace officer. Yeah. That's nuts. That's nuts. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, as you say, you know, we, we've got municipal jurisdiction, provincial jurisdiction, federal jurisdiction on a lot of this stuff. And even though, you know, Vancouver's challenges might be different from Calgary's and Winnipeg's or Montreal's, I think, you know, there, there's enough going on across the country where there are similarities, right? There are parallels. We're dealing with a lot of the same problems. A national strategy in, in this context probably could work then, right? Absolutely. You know, I've been I've spoken with a number of leaders from uh, various unions across the country. I've actually traveled uh, in the over the last year. I've traveled uh, to uh, I was in Vancouver just over a week ago looking at this issue. And uh, I've been in obviously Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, as well as Toronto and Montreal. Uh, the problems very well are the same. In mm-hmm. fact, there's not a big difference. I should also mention Ottawa, but the challenges are the same. Uh, there are some nuances and localized nuances, uh, predominantly environmental, such as Vancouver, where it's you're not going to freeze to death living on the street, yeah. by and large. Um, but uh, other than uh, uh, environmental factors, the social and structural factors at play are virtually identical. So that's why the National Task Force makes a lot of sense, because if we had the efforts of uh, experts from from researchers and academics, as well as uh, experts from the public and private sector, indigenous communities, um, industry, corporations, uh, you know, the list goes on. Finding, getting a lot of smart people from a lot of different um, areas to look at this problem through their respective lenses, capture that, and then develop uh, develop policies and practices. And if we can do this at a national level, uh, we're going to we're we're going to be leaders in this area, um, and most importantly, by taking this approach, I think I'm very I don't think I'm very confident that we will help to reduce the number of deaths from the toxic uh, yeah. uh, the toxic drug supply, and I hope that this includes the federal government because one group that uh, we don't hear a lot about from law enforcement is the Canada Border Services Agency. You know, they're the ones that are protecting the borders to keep the fentanyl out, to keep the drugs out, to keep the firearms out. A lot of the, despite a lot of the rhetoric we hear from government right now, most of the firearms, the Toronto Police did a great study, most of the firearms we're seeing used in street-level crime and gang violence are, in fact, coming from the United States. They're being smuggled in. We have a huge border. It's unprotected. So we, we need to have this group not only to bring people together from expert, or different areas of expertise to look at this shared problem coast to coast, but we also have to start finding efficiencies and coordinating approaches for law enforcement so that we can start taking um, more better informed approaches that are cost effective um, as well as uh, have a high level of efficacy. Some important points. We'll see see where this all goes from here. Dr. Sundberg, we'll leave it there, though. Appreciate the insight. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Great. Thanks for having me. Story in the Washington Post recently. 
that was very relevant to a Canadian audience because it concerned our Prime Minister. Leaked Pentagon documents uh, suggest that Canada's Prime Minister has informed NATO allies that Canada has no intention and likely never will meet its NATO defense spending commitments. Members of NATO agree collectively to spend 2% of GDP on defense as a way of ensuring that, that no NATO partner is freeloading off the others. It's supposed to be a defense alliance. And having other countries agreeing to come to your defense could potentially be a disincentive when it comes to building up your own armed forces, hence that commitment. Canada's at only about 1.2%. And really, you could go back, uh, not just over the, the years of the Trudeau government, going back uh, over previous governments as well. We've never really strayed far from that. So we've long been falling short of those commitments. Now, publicly, the Trudeau government hasn't confirmed those reports, but, you know, actions speak louder than words. Defense has not been a priority of this government. And so it continues to be, unfortunately, neglect as a policy when it comes to giving the Canadian Armed Forces what it needs. Ensuring that it can do their job in protecting Canadians and also ensuring uh, that we can stand shoulder to shoulder with our allies, that we're not a freeloader, that we're seen as a dependable ally. I think there's cause for concern here. Certainly something our next guest has been noticing. Uh, Gave a big speech on these issues a few months ago. Wrote a really interesting op-ed you can find in today's National Post, nationalpost.com. Joining us is the author of that piece. Uh, retired Lieutenant General Michel Maisonneau spent 35 years in the Canadian Armed Forces, testified in The Hague against Slobodan Milosevic, served as the first chief of staff of NATO's Supreme Allied Command, Transformation, was named the 30th Annual Laureate of the Vimy Award in 2002. So a very distinguished career in the Canadian Armed Forces. Lieutenant General, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. Nice to be with you. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us and... Yeah, I mean, as I say, this is something you've witnessed over the years. You've spoken about this. You've written about this. Did that Washington Post article really come as any surprise to you? No, not really. And unfortunately, it comes on, you know, after a number of other kind of, you know, warnings that have been, uh, you know, of course, I spoke about it in November but there have been others who've talked about, uh, you know, the fact that Canada is just not prioritizing its its uh, Canadian forces and its military and and defense. So, so this is kind of this is not surprising. And if it really uh, was said, it, it's it's uh, it's incredibly uh, bad news. Right, and it's not something the Canadians see firsthand. Canadians don't really have a good handle on the state of the armed forces or what this neglect is causing. What, what are the consequences, or what have the consequences been of this kind of an approach? Well, I, I think you're right. Canadians don't really worry about defense or their military until there's a crisis. I mean, right. frankly, uh, when you look at there's there's forest fires or there's a flood in, in Quebec or... Uh, or an emergency, uh, an international emergency, then they think about defense and what can we send and what can we use and and we need the military to deploy and even during COVID, as you saw. So that's the sad part about about Canadian society and I I think it's something that, you know, and it's never talked about in elections. No party has ever asked what their policy is on on defense and whether they intend to make the Canadian forces more operational, et cetera, et cetera. So... So it just is not in the Canadian uh, way of doing business. I mean, one of my old uh, mentors and uh, 
professors said that you know Canadians are you know Canadian history is a, a the military history of an unmilitary people, and, yeah. and unfortunately that's that is the case. What about our international standing? I mean, being a member of NATO, NORAD. I mean, our, our partnerships are, are incredibly valuable to Canada. But if we're not seen as a dependable partner, what might the consequences of that be? Well, you're absolutely right, Rob. So, so you've got you know you've got the defense piece for our own use, ourselves, Canada, and how do we defend ourselves if there's an emergency? Can we stand on our own two feet and defend our country? Uh, can we go to the north and uh, you know ki- you know destroy a, a balloon? My goodness, you know uh, we have two bases uh, for fighters, one in Edmonton and the other in Bagotville, and you know that's you know thousands of kilometers away from from the north. I mean. We can't even do that. So that's one aspect, our own defense. The second piece, of course, is are we able to participate to to project our values internationally? And right now we can't. And, are, of course, being member, members of alliances, whether you're talking about NORAD, whether you're talking about NATO, you know, something we need to be good partners and we need to, need to be able to, to pull our weight and when we're asked, uh, to, to go to Haiti or to, to go into, uh, into Latvia uh, to, to head the, uh, the brigade group there. We need to be able to do that. And right now, we're unable to do it. The chief of defense staff, General Ayer himself, said, look, we're, we're, right now we're not able to take on any new missions. We are, um, we are in a reconstitutional mode. So we're trying to reconstitute the Canadian force. It's going to take a decade at least to bring the forces back to operational capability. And meanwhile, the government puts out a new Indo-Pacific strategy, which needs to be implemented some way. So, you know, he can't take on new missions, but the the government's not thinking about that. They're just saying, okay, we have a new strategy and we're going to need military forces to look after to implement those strategies. So it's, that's the, that is the huge um, uh, impact of of the, uh, the lack of operational capability of our, of our military. Right. I mean, you know, in terms of that international standing, something you note in your piece, uh, we, we recently saw this new security uh, agreement or this this partnership between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia mm-hmm. that very clearly left Canada on the sidelines. That that was a bit of a warning, wasn't it, about how things are, are starting to, to uh, unfold? Well, you're right. And, and you know, what, what I saw about that, I mean, this is, you know, in 1987, the white paper said we're going to buy 10 to 12 uh, nuclear submarines. Now, what perfect, you know, weapon or what perfect uh, capability is that to go under the ice in our north if we want to say it's Canadian and to, uh, to, uh, to exercise our sovereignty, you need to be able to go up there. Right now we have nothing that can go up there except airplanes and, um, you know, uh, unarmed, un- unmanned surveillance. So, you know, the, the AUKUS uh, agreement, which is what you're talking about between Australia, the UK and the US, they went ahead and did that, and, and it included in there that Australia was going to get nuclear submarines to be able to protect itself and, and uh, you know, project its values and defend itself against probably a Chinese menace. So, you know, they, Canada was left out. Now, the, the, uh, the leaks from the Pentagon documents came out after that, but what if the Pentagon at the time, the U.S. at the time, was aware that, you know, the PM had made this, if he really did that, made that declaration that we'd never meet two percent you know kind of kind of saying well forget it we're never going to meet that so stop bugging us and so you know would that have influenced the u.s in saying well we're not going to even ask them to be part of this 
But it would have made sense to me, you know, as a Pacific nation that Canada is, and as one that needs nuclear subs, and it, you know, if they can trust the uh, the Australians with with nuclear capability or nuclear uh, technology, I mean, here we are. We're we're one of the their greatest allies, you know, through history, and we fought alongside, and we, you know, even in Afghanistan. So the U.S. So why wouldn't they trust us? So you know, it's it's possible to draw a link between. You know, the, the statement of we're never going to meet the 2% and the fact that we're not in AUKUS. Yeah, and, and we can't fix this overnight, I, I, right? I mean, I think it starts with at least the determination, start to move things in the right direction, start to invest. But, you know, we're well behind. And on top of that, even if we have the financial commitment, you know, the political will, you know, our procurement is, is such a mess, too. I mean, that, that's, that's got to be, be fixed. This is not an easy task ahead of us. No, absolutely. And of course, as I said in my piece, it's not just, you know, financial support, it's moral support as well. Yeah. You know, just uh, the government starting to pay attention and, and make make service to our country something that is 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 prized and something that should be should be, uh, you know, encouraged and, uh, you know, serving your country, being in the military. Uh, it's a fantastic career. And it's, you know, it gives you a chance to do something that takes you beyond yourself. And, and you know, and so, you know, I've always said there's a moral contract between Canadian society and the military. The military accepts to do those jobs that, you know, we ask them to do difficult ones, whether domestically with floods and forest fires or internationally in Afghanistan and other places. And on the other side of the contract, then, you know, since they accept to do that, we should say as Canadian society and the, and the government, we should give them all the tools they need to do that. You know, train them the best we can, give them the best equipment we can. Uh, give them the education they need, you know, and and uh, pay them properly and so on, and take care of them after they come back from these things, after they're veterans. And I could talk about veterans as well. So, you know, we're not doing that right now. And, yes, you're right, the procurement system is broken. So it's not just giving extra, you know, more money. There's definitely needs more money, and it's going to be very expensive. However, you know, you look at how much we paid for COVID, you know, uh, uh, people getting CERB and, and all that stuff, you know, I, it was a requirement. The government did it. I think we could do it as well. We are a G7 nation, incredible uh, GDP. So let's, you know, let's give more money to the military, but also, you know, fix the procurement system, fix the recruiting system, and, and let's get ourselves, uh, you know, where we should be as a, as a G7 nation. Absolutely. Well, we mentioned your op-ed. It's uh, up today at uh, nationalpost.com. Appreciate your insight on all of this and, and certainly appreciate your, your service to this country as well. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Rob, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank all you. Best, sir. Uh, there you go. That's uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Michel Maisonneuve. As mentioned, spent 35 years in the Canadian Armed Forces and uh, played some pretty important roles uh, for Canada, testifying in The Hague against Slobodan Milosevic serving as the first chief of staff of NATO Supreme Allied Command transfer, uh, Transformation in Norfolk, Virginia. So someone who cares deeply about these issues and, and has a lot of expertise on, you know, the state of affairs, which is not a pretty picture, unfortunately. We've seen recently uh, the Russian government announce sanctions against various Canadian individuals. A lot of Canadian political leaders, a lot of prominent commentators, including our next guest. But what, ha- what has happened with uh, the Putin regime and the McDonnell-Laurier Institute is quite remarkable. Now, the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, and we've leaned heavily on their expertise as we've navigated this whole situation with the invasion of Ukraine. And they've been sharp critics of the Putin regime. Enough so 
uh, that the Putin regime has gone to great lengths to try to block, to try to censor the websites of the Matanda Laurier Institute in Russia. Two weeks ago, as Global News reports today, Putin's government blocked the Institute's website and ordered the company that hosts it to shut it down. A report obtained by Global News shows Putin's censorship czar contacted the web host on April 11th, claiming the Institute's website was, quote, in violation of the law. So clearly there's a lot of concern on the Putin regime's part of the work being done by the McDonald Laurier Institute. Well, joining us on the line here this afternoon is Marcus Kolga, who is uh, the founder of disinfowatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. Marcus, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to be, you know, put on, on a list of Canadians being sanctioned by the Putin regime or blocked from, from visiting Russia, but this seems at a whole other level. When, when did you guys first become aware of that? Well, we uh, we were notified by our hosting company uh, around midweek last week that a letter had been delivered to them electronically through email uh, by the uh, prosecutor uh, general's office in Russia. Uh, and the letter uh, basically demanded that our hosting company uh, take down uh, the website because we were in contradiction uh, or we were uh, we were in contradiction of some some uh, undefined unidentified uh, Russian laws um, the the hosting company clearly didn't I mean they questioned the letter itself uh, forwarded it on to us um, refused to take down the website and so uh, you know it was actually quite surprising to see that um, the Russian government is actually going this far as, as so as to engage in what um, you know I'm, I would call transnational censorship. Um, uh, you mentioned that uh, it was the sort of censorship star that was behind this, and indeed it's an organization called uh, Roskomandor, uh, which has been which was set up a number of years ago by the Putin regime to basically monitor domestic uh, online uh, media, uh, other media as well, and basically act as the censorship arm for the regime. And it's been largely responsible for the shutdown, you know, I would say 99.9% shutdown of all uh, free and independent media inside of Russia. And so uh, this step to start now taking that sort of censorship or attempting to take that censorship to a whole other level and to uh, try and impose that sort of uh, censorship abroad is, is something completely new and I think represents a, an escalation in uh, Putin's uh, information war uh, in the context of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, that's, that's a concern here. I mean, we, we've seen the crackdown on, you know, domestic dissent. But, you know, to, to try to uh, go so far as to, to block and censor foreign websites... That does seem new. So it feels to you like an escalation. Yeah, I mean, blocking and censoring websites, foreign websites, is not a, a new thing. Uh, in fact, I think that uh, MLI's website has probably been censored for quite some time. Um, you know, I've been a, a critic of the, of the regime for, you know, at least 15 years. And so this is something that, uh, you know, uh, transnational repression, um, efforts to intimidate and threaten me, this, these are things that I've been experiencing regularly over the past uh, past 15 years. And so when I write things, whether it's, you know, for, for our national media, when I speak, often these, these get, will get censored uh, in Russia. But, 
um, again, to try and um, to, to demand that a Western company, a hosting company, to demand that they take down a website is, is yeah. a completely new level to try and impose censorship because that what they're trying to do is is to try and uh, bring down that website so as to effectively censor it even in Canada, the United States, and the entire democratic world. So to try and impose that view uh, on on the democratic world uh, and certainly here in Canada is is completely new and it's uh, we haven't seen anything like that uh, so far. I haven't seen anything like it in in the. Uh, nearly 20 years that I've been uh, watching uh, the Putin regime and, and monitoring their uh, repressive uh, tactics and, and disinformation. What, is the, what would be the motivation here? I mean, does it suggest a growing concern on Putin's part about uh, domestic public opinion? Why might things be moving in this direction? Well, look, I think that the Putin regime has, uh, since the start of this war, even before the start of this war, um, even going back to 2014, has tried to um, inject various different narratives into our information space that um, would erode public support for Ukraine. Um, the What's stopping Vladimir Putin from winning this war right now is, of course, the uh, the weapons, the ammunition, the various other forms of aid that we're sending to Ukraine. And... Um, you know, and I'm quite proud to say that uh, the McDonald Laurie Institute, my colleagues there, um, have been actively uh, supporting that. And I think they've been reinforcing uh, the government's uh, policy to to do that. I mean, we've obviously been calling, along with various other organizations, including the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, have been calling for, for more weapons and more aid to be sent to Ukraine so that uh, we can, uh, Ukraine has the uh, capability and the resources to actually win this war. And that's something that um, obviously, you know, irritates Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, we, we hosted a, an international uh, widely watched webinar in, in January that basically called for the formation of, a, of an international tribunal as well to hold the, the Putin regime to account. So, you know, all of these efforts are probably, um, you know, they're being monitored. Uh, everything that we write, everything that we say, I'm sure that this radio interview right now is being monitored by the Russian embassy in Ottawa, and it will probably be reported uh, back to Moscow. All of these things uh, irritate uh, Vladimir Putin and his regime uh, because they, uh, I think they contribute to, um, you know, uh, bolstering the support that we might give to a, a country like uh, Ukraine and, and our other allies in, in Eastern Europe. So, you know, they've really uh, poured a lot of resources into uh, trying to discredit critics uh, and the supporters of Ukraine and around the Western world, including here in Canada. And so this is that part of that campaign. And with uh, with Russia clearly uh, on the, and Putin on on their heels right now, um, you know, with this new Ukrainian spring offensive coming imminently any day. Um, I think that they're escalating that information operation to make sure that, or to not make sure, but to try and, again, erode that uh, the support that we're, we're, giving, uh, we're giving Ukraine uh, in, in the long term so that uh, Vladimir Putin might have a chance of actually uh, achieving some of his, uh, the goals that he's uh, set out, that he set out 14 months ago. Yeah, you know, and I mean, in, in free countries, like in Canada, I mean, you know, people have access to all kinds of information and all kinds of different perspectives, even on the situation in Ukraine. And that includes, I, I think, unfortunately, to some extent, a lot of Russian propaganda and, and disinformation. But for folks in Russia, 
I mean, what do they even have access to? If folks in Russia want to read not just, you know, materials from think tanks like McDonnell Laurier Institute or Chatham House, another that's been, you know, blocked by Russia, but even accessing yeah. other international news media, like how repressive is, you know, this Internet censorship in Russia? Well, it's, I mean, those uh, the gates are, are closed pretty tight at this point. Um, and, and Vladimir Putin, what he's been doing uh, for the past 20 years, progressively since coming to power in 2000, is, is basically uh, taking over uh, all independent media inside of Russia and making sure that uh, he controls uh, every, uh, all of the facts, all the information, all the media that, um, that his people consume. Um, now, there are small cracks uh, online through which the truth can get through. Uh, you know, YouTube is still... Uh, largely available to the to the Russian people, but um, but the majority of the media that they consume is still you know it's it's basically being the, the narratives are being crafted by the state. That means anything that uh, the Russian people might watch on on television, the radio that they're they're hearing, uh, or the newspapers that they're reading, or online information. You know, we're talking about uh, online newspapers. They're all state controlled. Um, the McDonald Laurier Institute absolutely is clearly not available in Russia, but platforms like CNN and BBC aren't either. Um, and of course, uh, much of, uh, you know, most of the Russian people, uh, the ones that live outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, they, they don't even have access to the internet. So, um, you know, Vladimir Putin has a direct pipeline into those homes and is able to basically control the, the views and the thoughts of of, of many of those Russians. So it's it's a pretty dire situation uh, inside of Russia right now. And Vladimir Putin controls uh, all of the information inside of it. Yeah. Well, more at uh, disinfowatch.org, also mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's Marcus Kolga, uh, founder of disinfowatch.org, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. But yeah, if you're in Russia, yeah, forget about accessing that website and, and many, many others. As you probably noticed lately, though, there's been a bit of a, a cultural reckoning when it comes to Canadian history, at least certain prominent Canadian historical figures. That includes, but is not limited to, Canada's first prime minister, uh, John A. Macdonald. But we've seen debates around statues, statues being toppled or vandalized or just taken down. We've seen buildings renamed. Even here in Alberta, we've seen it. I mean, Ryerson University in Ontario changed its name altogether to remove Egerton Ryerson's name uh, from the university. Uh, there have been debates about whether to change street names for other historical figures as well. And I mean, it's important then that we know our history so that we can have accurate and meaningful conversations, that we know what it is we're talking about when we talk about some of these historical figures and who they were and what it was they did that made them so significant. So is there some information lacking from all of this? Well, with all of this going on, there's a new group that has come together called the Canadian Institute for Historical Education. They want to make sure that we're having an informed conversation here. And believe it's important to defend Canadian history and even to defend some of these Canadian historical figures. Well, joining us to talk more about this debate 
why they felt uh, the need to create this uh, organization. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Gordon Walker, former Ontario politician and cabinet minister, one of the founding members of the Canadian Institute for Historical Education. Gordon, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Well, certainly, as I say, a lot of these debates uh, have raged uh, right across the country. Why was it important? Why did you feel uh, that uh, an organization, a group like this, was needed? Well, I think it's more the case that uh, a few of us, and the few grew to quite a few, but uh, a number of us were expressing some concern late last year, concern that there were things happening across the country, but uh, particularly uh, in the area that we happen to be in, the Toronto area, but uh, uh, but all the way across the country relating to statues being torn down, statues being defaced, streets being renamed or unnamed, mm-hmm. uh, and buildings being unnamed uh, for historical personages, or at least the names go back in history a long time and and we were concerned that that was happening because we had the feeling that people were rewriting the history and as we looked into it more we realized that in some cases it was substituted history false history Mm -hmm. the wrong history they were getting the history wrong and those were the reasons people were making decisions to change names the 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 classic of course has to be john a mcdonald and that can be all across this country whether it's victoria or calgary or whether we're talking toronto ottawa areas Um, all kinds of problems even in smaller communities but there are other names that float through uh, the other day, I saw that there was a group attempting to change the name of McGill University because uh, apparently James McGill was uh, a person who could be accused of being a slave owner. Well, that's a long, long time ago. An awful lot of people had slaves back then. It's not unique in um, Montreal, and it's certainly not uh, unique across Canada that there were areas where slaves were, even even amongst Indian populations there were slaves. Uh, So one has to keep all of these things in balance. We were concerned about false information. We were concerned about people who were perhaps applying mores of today to the mores of 200 years ago and saying those people should have had the same kinds of views. Even though they may have been societal views back then, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is today, that that's the decision. So those are the things that brought us together. There were a bunch of us who were older politicians. Let's say most of us had long since left the political world. Uh, all parties, we're talking about, uh, um, we're not talking about any single party. And uh, a number of people who were historians, professional historians and amateur historians. I suppose we're all amateur historians. Right. So we were concerned enough that we thought we'd get together. Let's see if we could do something about it. If there's something wrong with the history, if it's wrong, if it's false, let's make sure it's correct. Uh, And if decisions are still made on the basis of the history, as long as it's correct, well, at least they've had the benefit of that. So that's what brought us together. And uh, we've been attempting to do something here in our area, but I think it has application across the country as well. Yeah, I think it really does. A lot, a lot of these debates, as you say, happening really coast to coast uh, in, in some respects. What do you think is, is behind this, this push to tear down these statues, to rename these buildings? Is, is, it, is it politically motivated? 
Well, political in a sense, uh, not in the word political in the uh, in the sense that we often apply it, uh, partisan, uh, liberal, conservative, mm-hmm. NDP. It's not it's not that, but political in probably the sense that a lot of people, frankly, a lot of people want to deny colonization. Well, we're a country that came together because we were colonies. We were colonies. That's how it happened. And we can't get around our history. That's colonialization, whether we're talking British Columbia, whether we're talking um, the, uh, the eastern provinces, wherever it may be, it's, there is colonialization. That's how it happened. That's how it came about. So that's one thing. Others, sometimes they're trying to write what they see as a wrong, for instance, um, uh, there's been an awful lot of residential school issue that's been attributable to some people. Yeah. McDonald has had his share of, of uh, accusation on it. Uh, a fellow in Canada, who found, or at least in Ontario, founded the education system, the public system in Ontario, was Egerton Ryerson. Right. Uh, he's, he's accused of, of forming the curriculum for residential schools. Well, technically, yes. Uh, however, he was asked by the Mississaugas of the New Credit, by the Ojibwe, and he actually lived with them. He was asked to form the uh, curriculum. So doesn't that kind of change the picture? He's not to be blamed for it, but rather he was the one who did it as a result of being requested by uh, by Indian communities. So one has to look at the context. One has to look at the whole picture and can't focus on one small point and say that that therefore means everything else is afflicted by it. So mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of thing we're attempting to look at. Right. And I mean, maybe there's a difference between those who would, would sort of intentionally distort history, maybe versus those who, who don't fully know the history. I mean, is we have incomplete facts or inaccurate history being put out there. How much of that stems from maybe Canadians not knowing our, our history as much as we should? Absolutely dead on point. Yes. The school systems in Canada... What doesn't matter which province you wish to talk about. I, mm-hmm. I know in Alberta, I know in Ontario, and I know in a whole host of other provinces have really shortchanged history amongst our uh, students, amongst our pupils, amongst our usually secondary school people. They are not getting the history that used to be taught in our system. And so perhaps there are other reasons to teach other aspects of history or other kinds of history, which is fine. But don't forget, there's a Canadian history, and that's not being taught. Is it any wonder that some of our young people don't know what we're talking about? You mentioned the need for balance, and I think that's maybe where some of this has been lost. Uh, surely history is full of, of imperfect figures, but you know, being imperfect doesn't make one a villain. So how do we incorporate the balance and understand the good and the bad when it comes to history itself or, or historical figures? Well, that's exactly what our point is, yeah. that uh, we're prepared to look at the good and the bad. Um, we just want to make sure it's right. So that's that's the first thing. And balance is the other thing. If we're talking balance, it means let's look at the context. And, for instance, that example I used where technically, yes, he did form the curriculum, but in the broader picture, because he was requested by, by the indigenous communities. So we have to look at context, and balance is the key to it. 
And, of course, the other side of it is uh, let's not try and blame everything. Um, sometimes that's just the way history is. That was our history. It, somebody's not guilty of perpetrating that kind of history at the time. That was probably the way it was. Uh, I mean, I think of John A. MacDonald and how people are accusing him of residential schools. Well, he didn't found the residential schools. They'd already been in existence for years. Mm-hmm. He, um, he did respond to indigenous communities and tailored the picture of residential schools in the way that they should be. But he's not to be blamed for having created them. Uh, if anything, we could be probably talking about every single prime minister since him because the, the right up until the 90s. Yeah. The residential schools existed. So so we have to look at, it's not really something of blame, it's just something that happened. In the, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they said the only way to have reconciliation is to have truth. And isn't that the case? And that's what we really have to have. And that goes back to your word balance. There's got to be, it's got to be looked at in context. You cannot look at it in an isolated way and form an opinion that will not withstand or that will withstand the test of time. Well, these are important conversations and welcome contribution uh, to, to this conversation, the Canadian Institute for Historical Education. Uh, Gordon Walker, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you. All right, there you go. That's uh, Gordon Walker, former Ontario politician and cabinet minister, uh, one of the founding members of the Canadian Institute for Historical Education. Uh, we do need to know our history and, you know, warts and all. There's got to be an emphasis on that in schools. And yes, that means teaching you know, the founding fathers, the fathers of Confederation, Canada's first prime minister, building the railroad, but everything else that goes into that. We also need to be teaching you know, more about the history of residential schools and the treaties and the relationship uh, between uh, you know, the Canadian government, what became the Canadian government, and then First Nations. So we better understand all of this. So when someone says, let's take so-and-so's name off a building or let's take down that statue, we understand why. We understand the two sides of the argument. Or, you know, even to just see a statue, to know who that is, or to know why that statue was built, or to better understand why some might object to it. Right? So, yeah, I, I think it's important to, to know all of that. Not everybody's going to be in agreement on, on all of these things. Um, you know, political leaders uh, from the past are, are political leaders. I know history can sort of make some into heroes or some into villains. But, you know, like our politicians today, we don't really think of them as, as either. They're just politicians. And, you know, even 100 or 125 years ago, you know, that's what people thought of them, too. They're politicians. And some make good decisions, some not so much. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, a lot of those individuals did make important historical contributions. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.